Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for November 2014. My name is George Miller, and this is the last of three history podcasts this autumn. In the first, I spoke to Dan Jones about his new book on the War of the Roses, The Hollow Crown. And in the second, I spoke to Helen Castor about hers on Joan of Arc. I'm delighted to say that my guest in this third programme is biographer and historian Jenny Uglo. Jenny is, I think, unique in British publishing, for having a reputation for her work as an editor as high as for her accomplishments as an author. Among the people whose work she has edited are A.S. Byatt, Edmund White and Hermione Lee. And as a writer, she's been acclaimed for her books on a host of different subjects, William Hogarth, Elizabeth Gaskell, Thomas Buick, Charles II and the Lunar Men, a list which is far from exhaustive. A.S. Byatt has said of her, She has a novelist's imagination as well as a historian's, and has a brilliant eye for detail. And that eye for detail is everywhere evident in her latest book, In These Times, which depicts life in Britain during the two decades of war against France, which began in 1793 and culminated with the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. This is not a work of military history, though. Uglo's focus is on what the war meant to those who remained at home, the women, the children, the parents, those who kept the economy running and the soldiers fed and clothed, those who suffered immense hardships, and those who saw the wars as a chance to turn in a tidy profit. She's interested in how the economy worked, like an immense house of cards, she says, in how things got made, how news and rumour circulated, what people felt about the war and the privations it brought. Characters recur as the years pass. We come to know them and their hopes and fears. To give a little taste of this huge and hugely absorbing book, here is Jenny describing Prime Minister Pitt's attempts to raise funds to keep the war effort afloat. Pitt brought in new assessed taxes on virtually everything he could, on servants, gamekeepers, hats, ribbons and gloves, horses and carriages, shooting licences and cards, spirits and sporting dogs, newspapers and letter franks, wills and wig powder. Loyal citizens were horrified to find they were taxed on almost everything they owned, used, ate, drank, rode or read. The better off squared their shoulders. Jenny refers to her book as a crowd biography rather than a social history. I began by asking her what she meant by that. I wanted to follow the lives of all sorts of different people through the war to see how the Napoleonic Wars affected the lives of people in the very lowest class and in the highest and in between. And the best way to do that, I thought, was actually to have as it were, real people, not to make broad generalisations with scattered quotes, but just to follow different individuals and different families through. So I suppose there are about 30 people whose lives all weave all the way through the war because it was so long, 22 years, so they're either growing old or they're growing up or they're having children. And uh, and that was a way of just, just showing how people lived while the war was going on in the background. And were you spoilt for choice for documentary evidence to draw on? Oh, yes. Um, the archives of Britain are amazing. I mean, the county archives are overflowing with correspondence and so the, the special collections of universities and things like that. So 
there was far, far too many families to choose from. And some families, especially, say, one of them is a little family called the Longstons, and they're farmers in Derbyshire, but they have a little local cotton mill, and then they own one in Manchester. And because the fathers in Derbyshire and the sons, say, are in Manchester or London, they write all the time, and they kept everything. So there are literally hundreds of letters in that correspondence, and that's very often the case. Did you set yourself the challenge of finding people who are sort of representative, you know, people who can stand for a particular kind of experience or class or or regional experience? I did, and I didn't. Um, What I uh, prefer to think of them as is sort of markers of a class. I mean, nobody sums up what's happening to the middling classes or what's happening to the weavers. They're very individual. Their family might be different. They might have, you know, bad digestion and be cross or whatever. But it's that mix of individuality and an experience which is shared with a lot of other people that makes them sort of representative. You say something which which really struck me quite early on in the book. In facing revolutionary France, Britain was really facing a new enemy. It was an, an enemy unlike any it had faced before. Can you say a little bit about how, how, right at the beginning, the British saw that threat from revolutionary France? Yes, they saw the threat in different ways. I mean, the establishment, say. The first was that they made a mistake. They thought that after the revolution, because there was this great levy en masse on France, where every man between the age of 18 and 25 was supposed to fight, and that meant they had an army of over a million to draw on. But because they were amateurs and they were farmers and labourers and so on, the British thought they would be uncoordinated and hopeless and easy to defeat. So in a sense that the idea of the national army was one that they mocked, but for a very, very short time. But the the other point was that they felt they were fighting a nation and a people, and they couldn't identify the leaders that they should negotiate with. And the whole idea of fighting a people made them far more nervous about their own people. You know, what would happen? It's a great question. They thought, what would happen if we gave arms to every man in this country between 18 and 25? Also, it was a war not fought over a piece of territory or over a succession, but over ideology, I suppose you could put it like that. Mm. Well, it was presented as such. It was presented to the people that um, these were king killers and they would wish to get rid of all the crowned heads, including George III, and that it meant rule by a rabble a violent, unthinking rebel. So it was presented as an an ideological war, a different kind of constitution, fighting for the virtues of civilization against anarchy. What it actually was, and what opponents of the war very quickly were able to say, was, as so often, was a war about economic power. As the French armies invaded the Low Countries, Uh, and approached Amsterdam, Antwerp and Amsterdam. Uh, The British saw huge threat to their trade, particularly for the East India Company. 
they really wanted to defend that. It was a great thing about defending the North Sea, defending the Channel, defending the trade. At the same time, they saw the war opportunistically, that they could uh, fight a weak French navy, they could take uh, French territories, as they did, islands in the West Indies, they could prevent French trade with India and so on. So it was an economic war, but it was fought under an ideological guise. But after the revolution, liberty trees had been planted in, in many places in, in Great Britain. There were people who were deeply sympathetic, at least initially, to the French Revolution, weren't there? Yes. I think the majority of people in Britain were certainly sympathetic to the early uh, revolution because they saw it as bringing France, an absolutist France, which had been our enemy, been fighting France not long before, but bringing it nearer to the British constitution of a kind of parliamentary rule. As the revolution continued, uh, and the Jacobins came to power, and then there was the terror, but most of all the execution of Louis XVI, many people turned against it, so they were great loyalist groups. But a substantial minority held to their belief that if the system could be, as it were, calmed down, then a French Republic was no problem. After all, we had a Dutch Republic for years, nobody worried about that, and and um, that it was altogether a good thing. And in fact, actually, those ideals of the French Republicanism, as explained you know, by Tom Paine in Rights of Man, uh, were something that we should strive for in this country. And at various points in the book, people wonder, well, why would I want to fight against the French? Why are they my enemy, you know, when, when I have so little going for me in Great Britain? Yes. Certainly at some points in this long uh, 22 years, the troubles at home are far more important to most people than the fighting abroad. There is tremendous hunger after very bad harvests. Uh, there are food riots. And then they see the army not as fighting for them against the French, but as the militia kind of putting down disturbances at home. Britain suffers terrifically from the trade blockade, so that quite a lot of the families that I write about who might be uh, mill owners um, and just weavers are suffering from lack of jobs, lack of employment, watching hunger everywhere. And there's a longing to finish the war and simply get on with ordinary life and business. Yeah, the, the war is like permanent bad weather. And it also seemed that the weather was permanently bad. You know, through them, it probably wasn't permanently, but there were so many, you know, excessive falls of snow or rains or crops that were blighted in this period. There are. We, when you're thinking back in time... Uh, the weather is tremendously important, actually. It was a time of very long winters, wet springs, and often intense drought in summer. So actually it was a difficult time climatically for Britain. And certainly that causes a lot of hardship as well, and it causes difficulty for the farmers and, and so forth. And it, is, it isn't all the time, but there are, there are spells when... Bad winters follow each other and the harvest is ruined, say, for two years in succession. And that is a real problem. And that leads to the prospect or the, the actuality of, of disturbance, sedition, mm. riots mm. and all the things which are, have to yes. be clamped down upon. Yes, it does. It goes in phases because, as I said, it's a long time. So the worst food riots are in the first wall 
which we call the French Revolutionary War in 1798 and in uh, 1800. And then you see an intense uh, sort of sympathy for the poor and for the paupers. But at the same time, it's the very poor men that are being taken into the army. Many, many people join the army and take the bounty, take the shilling, you know, or more, it goes up to two or three pounds, which is a lot for them, um, just simply in order to feed their family. And there are a lot of ballads about that at the time. As a Scot, I was very struck by the fact that the Scots and the Irish are Mm. overrepresented in numerical terms Mm. in the army. I think do you say up to half of the army were Irish and Scots at one I think point? It's certainly well over a third. And and they're treated very quite differently because there was anxiety about Irish rebellion. There was of course the rebellion in Ireland in seventeen ninety eight. but the Scots are among the first to be recruited and that again is as um, largely Highlanders short of work, who come down to the cities looking for seasonal work, who then taken into the army, or the great clan chiefs who actually found and pay for regiments in order to get uh, status and power in Westminster. And the Highland regiments become a key feature in terms of British propaganda, if you like to say, or the, or the image of the British soldier in the war, the the tartans and the charging highlanders and uh, they become a very sort of glamorous feature they <laughs> they were that glamorous so they're a distinct group the irish who nearly as many uh, uh, irishmen are drafted at different times but they're, they're scattered between different regiments they don't they're not they're not you, you apart from the inner skillens you you have very few irish regiments one of the great pleasures of the book was just to see all the various interlocking parts of the economy, you know, from, from tiny manufacturers all the way up, and to see also the, the effects of finance and banking and the sort of bigger economic picture. Tell, tell me a bit about investigating that and trying to sort of create a sense of the whole nation being mobilised, I suppose. Yes, the whole nation ran on um, credit, as much as today, I think. If one's thinking about the textile industry, that a sort of handloom weaver might bring their goods to the market and to sell to the masters or the manufacturers who will pay them on credit. When Nathan Rothschild becomes a businessman in Manchester, he does fantastic well because he pays cash on the nail, which he actually has the capital. But then the, the masters and the clothiers themselves are borrowing from the banks and they're putting off their payments. And the banks are lending, as it were, on credit and interest. And they may be quite small banks founded by groups of friends. So that very often you have a, a particular faith group, say that like the Unitarians will lend to each other, the Quakers will lend to each other, people they know, small banks sort of on trust, but they're charging 5%, they're charging quite high interest rates. Some of them are tax collectors, tax gatherers, they use the money they're getting in to pay the taxes to actually lend out, then they have to pay the government. And then there are the big, sort of bigger county group banks, like the Gurneys, who are one of the families in my book in East Anglia. They're Quakers, they have links with Barclays, another Quaker bank in London. Then you have the big private banks in London. One of the joys was working in uh, the archive in Hawes Bank, 
where they have the accounts of everybody like Byron and the Austin family and Isambo Brunel, you know, who's always broke. And they are doing deals with the city, the stockbrokers and so on. And the government in turn are borrowing huge amounts, raising that in the city. And all the way down, all these little banks are taking part of that debt. So the, the whole structure is interlocking, but it's very fragile. As you say, very fragile, because fortunes can be made, but fortunes could be lost. And a lot of little banks failed, didn't they? And Yes. And a lot of small banks failed because they lent more than they had in reserves. It's a classic question. It still applies today. So that when there was a big scare, as there was in 1797, when the French landed in Pembrokeshire, and they thought, oh, French are coming, French are coming, must get my money out. The small banks actually couldn't pay the money and they collapsed. Other banks uh, collapsed if there was a very, very hard time in terms of trade and they couldn't collect the money from the people they had lent it to, things like that. There are quite a few bank collapses. It is a matter of confidence. And one of the people in my book who's a, I became very fond of, who's a, a yarn merchant and a small banker in Bury St Edmunds, James Oakes, you know, at one of these times, absolutely sure he's going to lose everything. But they just ride it out because he's well known and people trust him and they just get through market day, as it were, and after that you're all right. You mentioned the, the landings in Pembrokeshire, which didn't really amount to very much, but the fear mm. of invasion well, it rose and fell, but it, when, it, when it was at its height, it was, it was really pretty frenzied, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was. It's a quite genuine fear. Um, I mean, the French were determined to invade, and the first set of attempts, where they tried to invade in, in Ireland, in Bantry Bay, and the French fleet is dispersed by gales, and at the same time, there is this little landing in Pembrokeshire, which is beaten back within hours almost but then it becomes a more serious more organized attempt and this is where we first begin to fear Napoleon who's in charge of the Armée d'Angleterre and encamped on the cliffs of Boulogne you know so he could be seen across the channel once in 1798 and then they can't quite manage to invade and again in the second war in 1803 and um, Napoleon was issuing very definite bulletins explaining uh, that he was going to invade and you know, every man would be, not saying every man would be put to the sword, but how, how good it would be to have the French uh, ruling and how the British were going to be trampled in the dust. So the British government, in response, encouraged um, the booksellers to issue uh, broadsides and broadsheets, which are plastered over walls and in pubs and things everywhere full of tremendous propaganda, which is simultaneously about the awfulness of the French and the terrible rapes and pillaging that will happen as soon as they arrive. So you've got to be very afraid, and about the strength of John Bull and the loyal women who are going to support him. So it's quite a dodgy balance to either make people really scared to take it seriously, but also to arouse morale so they think they can resist. And inevitably rumours get going. I was intrigued by the one that Napoleon was going to build a bridge from Calais, uh, yeah. or that, that balloons yes. were going to bring them, bring them across the channel. Yes, we're going to have balloons, uh, we're going to have a bridge, and the other one is these amazing uh, designs for rafts, which would be 
you know, the size of a football pitch and could carry regiments and carry castles and carry guns and these were going to be floated across the channel. And these are actually, interestingly, this is French propaganda. Those particular ideas were made to encourage the French people that this could happen, not to terrify the British. Another of the very interesting things about your book is just seeing how news circulated, you know, how people got their news, whether it was news of their own loved ones or whether it was the, the, the bigger picture. We do tend to underestimate the degree to which people felt they were in touch with what was going on. The newspapers, this great boom in newspapers just before the wars. So there are provincial newspapers and there are London newspapers. And they carry the London newspapers first, and then the provincial papers, usually about sort of four pages, if you can imagine, kind of four pages of foolscap, really. And the, But the central two pages will be detailed political and foreign news, reports of debates in Parliament, reprinting of dispatches from the battlefield. Very, very detailed, more detailed than we get today. But of course, they're largely from official sources, so not altogether to be trusted. But so many people read these papers. You know, if you could afford it, you'd actually subscribe to them at six bits a time. But families who couldn't support it often clubbed together, so they would circulate the paper amongst a group of families. Uh, innkeepers bought them, as well as coffee houses we think of. We think of the middling class, the men, the businessmen, etc., being writers being in the coffee house. But they're also actually in the ordinary taverns and the pubs. And they're very often literate workers would read them aloud to their fellows, so the news spread like that. So that's straightforward news. And it's always counterbalanced by uh, letters, which are also circulated, often copied out, circulated among friends. Um, letters might be from the battlefield, uh, might be from people at sea, but they might be from people in the dockyard. They don't seem to have been censored, at least not much, you know. Um, and they give a rather different view of what's going on. Then there are the ballads, and then there's the theatre. A lot of um, plays have a sort of uh, fairly improvised quality so that recent news is included in them. And, and there is a a real hunger for news. And of course, actually, the, given all that, there's plenty of news. Often it is very, very late. Uh, for example, it took six weeks for the news of the Battle of the Nile to reach Britain because the first ship carrying Nelson's dispatches um, is captured halfway and they have to send it, you know, send it all over again. Um, other times it might only be a week. Uh, sometimes the the news from the continent is really held up, but the packet boats can't get through from uh, Holland or from Hamburg or from where they're, they're bringing the news from. And at other times, too, the British papers carry Napoleon's dispatches, and sometimes to mock him, but often because actually that's the only information they've got as what is going on. So you can hear about a whole set of French triumphs which didn't actually happen. It was a war, a war which embraced the world, really. I mean, there were various theatres sim simultaneously. So given this time lag and mm. difficulty of reliable sources, the picture must sometimes have been very confusing or bewildering for the, for the ordinary people in Britain. Oh, it was certainly bewildering. It's interesting to see, um, say, the wives of soldiers 
or even writers like Walter Scott and so on, actually poring over maps, people literally putting pins in maps, and particularly soldiers who are fighting, they might be fighting in Egypt, they're fighting in India, so their wives and children at home are trying to work out where they are. And there are some quite funny diary entries where Mary Hardy, who's the wife of a, a Norfolk brewer, who is um, quite political and quite concerned, but she just gives up. The names are too difficult. So she'll say two big battles in Austria, you know, she even though the paper in front of her will, will give the names of the battles. They just, it does become too much. Profound shifts were taking place. This was the era which saw the Luddites smashing weaving machines. Mm-hmm. It was the era of the, the Highland clearances where people were being cleared off the land to make way for sheep. So, so really profound social changes were happening, either as a result of the war, indirectly, or, or for, for other reasons. The changes are happening already. The factories are beginning 1760s, you think of Wedgwood, Etruria, Matthew Bolton, Soho, etc. But the um, war forces everything to accelerate. Um, In industry, because of the great need for iron, you have more smelting, you have the foundries working at uh, top pitch, you have gun makers, you have musket makers, you have also new technologies like making the a wonderful pulleys that the Navy needed. And Brunel, uh, the senior, develops this amazing machine that can make thousands, more than more even than the Navy needs at Portsmouth. People come from miles to see it. Even the supplying the Navy with ship's biscuit at Deptford, it becomes a production line. You have people doing it. They have to do, get 70 biscuits a minute in the oven. And biscuits were sort of hard bread. Biscuits are kind of hard, yes, exactly. They're hard, dry, dry bread, really. Um, In agriculture, there's the same feeling that changes that were happening get uh, sort of crunched forward because we desperately needed um, maximum yield, corn, but also particularly meat, cattle, sheep. And so the enclosures, which had begun well before the war, or there had been enclosures Tudor England, but this particular drive of them, become far more intense. There are sort of four or five times as many enclosure acts. So the landscape's actually changing. The most dramatic uh, victim of improvement, it's always called improvement, is, as you say, the clearances in Scotland where um, the drive to raise sheep, uh, it's people sort of eye the highlands and the mountains and the moors, and the big landowners like uh, the Countess of Sutherland actually clear the whole valleys of the crofts and the and the towns and drive them down to the coast and, and many thousands of people emigrate and that is a, a, a terrible sort of period in Scottish history. The establishment, meanwhile, is hanging on as tightly as possible to its its vested interests, isn't it? It doesn't really want to give up anything, give it, give an inch for fear of having to give a mile. The Whig aristocracy who make up the government and then the Tories, as it were, who follow them because it becomes this political split, they are very concerned to maintain both their seats in Parliament, their local and national power, their interests in land, their mortgages, so on, their control of the army, their control of the navy. And, and when they feel this threatened, there is a real burst of, of repression. There are uh, acts against seditious meetings. 
There are the Combination Acts against the workers. There are many sort of forms by which all kind of opposition, all dangerous opposition is repressed. Looking back on this period, it would be hard to exaggerate its impact on the national consciousness for for decades, for centuries after, really. And there, was, there were such important moments took place in, in this campaign. It was inevitable, really. It would, it would leave its mark. It left its mark in uh, different ways. Um, undoubtedly, uh, Trafalgar, Waterloo, the idea of the victory and the victory celebrations helped to encourage an acceptance of a sort of militaristic nationalism and of a united kingdom. And the troubles in Ireland affect that too, you know, the, the sense that uh, the four nations must be one. All the things that I don't think are necessarily terribly good outcomes. During the war, there's a very strong evangelical movement, which in part sees the war as a judgment on the nation's sins. So there's a, a drive towards good behaviour, the poor knowing their place and so on. Part of this as a good effect, which is the abolition of the slave, British slave trade in 1807, which is a wartime measure, a sop, to get these people to vote for the government. But then that whole sense of God on our side, of Britain and the Allies having won the war, and then, you know, carrying the word outwards, allies this strong sort of missionary sense which goes actually with the building of empire there's a strange sense of what Britain means and the other legacy is that people have actually really learnt to organise so workers have learnt to organise the provinces have learnt to organise in terms of demanding an end to the trade blockades demanding peace People have have been able to gather despite all the repression and huge public marches, and this is going to to lead towards a push to for reform. Um, will take twenty years to come. Terrible depression after the war, and more repression at Peterloo, the massacre in in Manchester. But eventually, I think that the organisation of ordinary people during the war does. Uh, lead forward to the reforms of the Victorian era. I was talking to Jenny Uglo about In These Times, living in Britain through Napoleon's wars, which is out now in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find a short video featuring Jenny talking about the book. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. You'll find my recent interviews with Dan Jones on the Wars of the Roses, and Helen Castor on Joan of Arc there. Until next time a special podcast in which you can hear all three historians featured in this series reflecting on writing history today. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.